Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 18. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, and here with my co-host, Deaconess Tiffany Manor. Uh, Tiffany and I get to co-host now two episodes in a row because we we actually happen to be in the same state, in the same city at the same time. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that happens uh, like t- twice in this past year, I think. Well, so yeah. it's pretty fun and uh, we're, we could get a, a little used to this and <laughs> want to hang out together all the time. Uh, but it, it's kind of fun too, because we've got another friend joining us who is really dear to me, but I, I um, will let you introduce her staff. Yeah, we have our, our, our gracious guest here with us today, Kristen Gregory. And uh, Kristen and I were, were introduced to each other through um, a dear mutual friend of ours, uh, Katie Shurman. And then as we got talking back and forth, we, we realized we have more things in, in common than, than even a, a, a shared friendship with Katie. And, and that is our, um, your husband, Kristen, and and then I grew up in the same um, part of the country up in northern Michigan, and you and I are both pastor's wives. And and then the very cool blessing is that Tiffany knows you personally, too. And so, Tiffany, would you mind telling us how you know Kristen? Sure. Well, that's funny that, that you and Peter grew up in the same area because Kristen and I did, too. In oh, you started around on that. I Yeah. <laughs> Cornfields. And uh, it's like even the same county, I think. But Kristen's much younger than I am. Uh, so we didn't necessarily hang out with the same people, but we know all the same places and, and things. But Kristen and I um, have known each other now, I don't know, like six, seven, eight years, something like that. A lot of years um, because we um, were pastor's wives together up in the New England district. Our, our um, husband's uh, pastored kind of in the neighborhood, same same area uh, together. Uh, and I was really Kristen's deaconess. So that before I was serving with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Office of National Mission and Life Ministry, I was serving the New England district and uh, providing care and support for all the church workers. So not only were we friends, but I was Kristen's deaconess. So I know their family and uh, we've walked together in some sad days and really happy days and spent holidays together. And she knows all of my kids and I haven't had the joy of knowing all of yours. I, I, I did not get to know all of your children. Kristen, but there's there's more to come on that. So this is this is a really very special episode to me to to get to talk with Kristen. Yeah. And Kristen, I'm going to give you a, a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners, but just an intro here on our episode today. Kristen, you and your husband were given a, a really hard story and a hard uh, road to walk as a family. Um, you've been blessed uh, to carry children and you've been given the gift of many children, though some have never lived beyond a few months in your womb. And so I, uh, with along with our listeners and with Tiffany, want to thank you for being here today bravely to share your story. And we also have you here today so that you can point us to Jesus, even in the in the hard things, that you could hopefully teach us about your faith, which is able to say, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Kristen, welcome. If you would introduce uh, yourselves to our listeners and and tell us about you and your family and where you live and 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 what you guys do for fun and on down days, if there even is such a thing as a mom of a lot of little people. Sure. Thank you. I'm from Iowa, like Tiffany said. 
I became a Christian at the end of high school. And um, I, I, can tell, I can talk more about this, but met my husband and we got married in 2007. And we got six, we have six living kids and we homeschool. My kids and I run a beeswax candle company, uh, just kind of on the side. And we do a lot of hiking, spend a lot of time outside, a lot of game nights, a lot of reading. A beeswax candle company. Tell me more about that. That sounds awesome. During COVID, we were dipping our candles. We always dip our candles for Advent. We make our own like Little House in the Prairie style candles. And they're, they were terribly ugly. And during COVID, we decided since we couldn't leave the house, we might as well like order some molds and make some candles. And we ended up um, making some really nice candles and decided to sell them at our town market. So we actually go up to the market once a week and sell our candles. It's not a hot commodity. No one's looking for candles in the middle of summer, but (laughs) we use them for our family prayers. So it was a chance to just have nicer candles for our prayers. And yeah, neat. Do they smell, do beeswax candles smell? They smell like honey. Yeah. They smell like honey. Yeah. So fitting for every season, really, because who doesn't want to smell a fresh hive of honey? At any time of the year. Yes. That's awesome. What a cool, what a cool thing to teach your kids. And what yeah. a cool hobby on the side. That's it. You've got chickens too, right? I mean, so. We have chickens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fun. We have chickens. <laughs> I <laughs> my, kids, my kids are jealous. My kids wish that they're always have said, well, now my kids are all grown up, but, but they, I, I think, have a little disgruntlement that we never had chickens for them. So yeah. they always like to visit the Gregory's chickens and we're kind of enthralled with they were the only pet we could handle so (laughs) it sounds like if I'm if I'm just I have these pictures in my mind it sounds like you're just kind of a a homesteading family who who likes to make their own things and eat their own farm-raised chicken eggs and it just sounds like a cozy place to visit I want to visit sometime oh you should it's a lovely place it's a lovely place (laughs) well it's just a lovely part of the country we have a really sweet church. I really enjoy our church parish. They've taken good care of us. And yeah, it's a great place to come see. really hospitable people. Like, you know, for Thanksgiving, oh my goodness, how many people did we have a couple of Thanksgivings in a row there, two or three at, at, in your home and in your church? And I mean, I don't know, 20 or plus, but they, they're really hospitable people and, and just so sweet. Sorry, I could, uh, I'm going to spend the whole episode singing the Gregory family's um, <laughs> praises. And, and also I should give thanks to God for, for them as well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, six living children, Kristen, it sounds like it keeps you very, very busy as well. My um, house is very loud. Yeah. Okay. I could I could gather that just because I have two and my house is very loud. So I can imagine <laughs> two times three is extra loud. That's a lot of loudness. Yes. Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about the, the book that you've also contributed to? It's um, called Never Forsaken. What what part did you play in, in that and what is it about? It's a book about miscarriage and infant loss and the hope people can find in Christ who have lost children. I was just approached by the author to uh, contribute a chapter. I, I actually don't know her personally. Yeah, so I've given that to a few people and shared shared some chapters with people. And did you write more than one chapter? I did not. You, okay. okay, so you have a specific chapter in that book. Yes. That's dedicated then to your story. Is that correct? Right. Correct. Okay. And for those listeners who have not read that book, well, first of all, 
how could they get that book so that they could read the entire book? Um, it's published through CPH and it's by Catherine. Hold on, I just need to make sure I pronounce it. I always forget her last name. Catherine Ziegler Weber, published by CPH, uh, 2018. So that, that would be, um, their website's pretty, pretty easy. It's Concordia Publishing House and it's just, you know, you just do the www.cph.org. So Concordia Publishing House, so that's, the, you know, the acronym cph.org. So the book will be there. Great. And Kristen, it, the, the title again is Never Forsaken, God's Mercy in the Midst of Miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So then obviously the chapter that you wrote, I'm assuming has to deal with those those hard stories. Would you be willing to share your story with us today? Sure, sure. So my husband and I met in college and we started dating several years after college, 2005, I believe it was. And he, as soon as we start dating, started to date, he actually went uh, on his vicarage in California. I was in Cincinnati. So we spent, our whole dating relationship was long distance. And so we had a lot of conversations and a lot of letters. Uh, we didn't email at all. There wasn't texting then, or if there was, we didn't have it. And we had all of our conversations either verbally or in letter. And one of the topics we talked about, because we knew we wanted to get married, we were heading toward marriage. The biggest topic we talked about was birth control and whether or not we wanted to be open to children or did we want a certain number of children and how that, how we, how we each uh, thought about that topic. So we got married knowing that we wanted to be open to kids. And I had been told by a doctor 10 years or so previous that I may have trouble getting pregnant. So we didn't know if openness to kids would mean adoption, if it would mean one baby, 10 babies. We just didn't know what that would look like. So we got married in 2007 and we got pregnant on our honeymoon. So we came back from our honeymoon. I was feeling a little nauseous and we found out a couple of weeks later that I was pregnant. So he, my husband was a student. And he had, I was a nanny, so he had no income and I had a very small one. So we actually didn't have maternity insurance. So um, we never had an ultrasound. We were going to do a home birth with a midwife and uh, everything was going well. We were just thrilled, but we were really still getting to know each other because we had, this is the first time we had lived in the same town and, you know, we're brand new newlyweds and we're still really new to each other. So I was 33 weeks pregnant and I went for my ultrasound and the doctor or the midwife told me I was looking small and I should get an ultrasound. So I went in for an ultrasound and the, uh, you know, we, we saw the baby on the screen and we thought everything was normal because we had never seen an ultrasound before. So looked good to us. But when we went into our waiting room and we were waiting for the doctor, I noticed there were a lot of people staring at our room and it was, it, it seemed strange out in the hallway. So I told my husband, something's wrong. And he said, no, everything's fine. I'm sure everything's fine. And the doctor came in and sat down and said, you're scheduled right now for, an ultra, or for a C-section. Something's wrong with the baby. So I was nannying at that moment. I had my two kids with me that I nannied. So they're sitting on my lap and my husband burst into tears and we just, we don't know what to do. We don't really understand what's happening. So the doctor continued. She said, your baby's under two pounds. It could die, you know, at, at any time. The placenta is deteriorating. So it's time to take the baby out. So um, we were scheduled for a C-section right after that. So I got wheeled in for the, the C-section. 
And, you know, I'm at this point, I'm in shock because I wasn't expecting this <laughs> when I woke up that morning. And, uh, you know, they put the drape in front of you so you can't really see what's going on. But I could see the doctor's heads and the nurse's heads and I could see blood squirting up. I remember it hitting her glasses uh, and just seeing that and saying, is everything OK? Is everything OK? And she just said, please be quiet. I'm I'm concentrating here. So it was just silent in the room. And my husband and I had memorized a psalm to pray together when we were in labor. And of course, in the middle of that moment, we could not remember a word of it. <laughs> so we're looking at each other, trying to like trying to communicate. And it was just so paralyzing. So she got the baby out. We didn't know if it was a girl or boy, but someone announced it's a girl. And right away, they took her uh, into, an, into an incubator box and wheeled her into the NICU. So I got to see her as she passed by, saw that she had a lot of black hair. And while they're stitching me up, we had to decide what to name her because we needed to baptize her right away. And we decided to name her Vivian Anastasia, which means resurrection and life. And she was actually due on Easter. So this was January 31st. She was due about seven weeks later. And we named her Vivian after my great grandmother, who was a lovely woman. And they ended up right away having to ventilate her. They had to stabilize her before my husband could go in and help with the baptism. Dr. James Busher baptized her, who is the same man who married us a few months before. So that was comforting to have him there. But I spent that whole time alone in the recovery room while they were in baptizing her. And we didn't know, was she going to be alive at the end of that day or, or what? So it was a pretty rough uh, experience. It was actually, looking back, I can say the worst day of my life. And the day I felt the most lonely, the most terrified. And I had just gone into marriage with such rosy glasses, thinking that if I'm open to children and obedient to God, then I'll have all these great blessings. And this just seemed like the opposite of that. So it was really, I'm still working it out, honestly, still trying to figure out bits and pieces of that. But she lived for 24 weeks, almost, almost six months. And the whole time we spent with her in the NICU. So she was um, hospitalized and ventilated almost all of that time. We also halfway through that time, and she was 10 months or so, or 10 weeks or so, we figured out that she had a genetic issue. So she had a dwarfism called Russell-Silver syndrome, which is the reason why she was so small, which is the reason why she was so sick. And her heart and lungs just couldn't support her body. So we sat by her bed, which is a really hard way to spend your first second, the second half of your first year of marriage in a hospital. So we sat by her bed we sang hymns to her and read her books and read scripture to her. And it was, it was actually really miserable. <laughs> like I said, she was ventilated most of the time. At the last, the last couple of weeks of her life, she was put on a trach. So they were able to move her vent to her uh, throat instead of her mouth. So we could see her face more and see her smile. But because of that, she was never able to make noise. She was never able to, you know, cry like a normal baby. And we could never just pick her up because if we wanted to hold her, the doctors would have to pick her up, unplug her from the vent, duct tape her to us, duct tape the ventilator to her. I mean, it was just a really complicated, if you're going to hold your baby, you're in for eight hours kind of thing. So that was sweet time, but hard, hard time. 
to not be able to take care of her like we would have liked to have. So at this time, nobody knows because of her genetic issue, nobody knows if she's going to die, if she's going to live. We were talking about taking her home on a ventilator and I'd be responsible for her at home on a ventilator, which was kind of an overwhelming thought and a lot of responsibility on my part because, you know, what if she died on my watch and I couldn't take care of her? And it's just not what I pictured motherhood to look like. So it got to be July and she was getting sicker and sicker. And we had filled out one of those no, no, do not resuscitate forms because she had been resuscitated several times before. She had almost died several times. And she was just getting sicker, not growing very much, even though we were feeding her around the clock. She had a G-tube in place so we could just feed her continuously. And she just wouldn't grow. And her lungs just couldn't hold, you know, sustain her anymore. So on the night of July 16th, one of the nurses said, you guys really need to just leave. <laughs> you two need to go out by yourselves and do something. So my husband and I went to my landlord's house and swam in a swimming pool, which was a great blessing because we had literally just sat in this room in this hospital for six months. So that was such a gift looking back because she passed away the next day and we had had that moment of kind of normalcy just, just for a minute before that. So we woke up on July 17th. This is 2008 now. Uh, we woke up on July 17th and she was asleep. Like her eyes were closed. She just, she never really woke up that day. And the day before she had been smiling and really happy and very pleasant looking. We have a lot of pictures from that day. But on July 17th, she was really dusky. Her oxygen level was like 30%. She just couldn't, she couldn't keep the lung capacity up. And that evening I was holding her and then I passed her off to our nurse. We had a primary nurse that took care of her most of the time and she held her for the first time because usually the nurses are not supposed to hold the babies and kiss the babies and things like that. But I asked her if she wanted to hold her. And so she did. And then she passed Vivian off to Peter. And while Peter was holding her a few minutes later, her heart on, a, on the monitor, her heart started waving instead of having spikes, like heartbeat spikes. It just started waving. And I said, I remember saying, this is it. Like, this is the moment. And we turned off all the machines. So we couldn't watch the machines, but we could just be with her. And we started praying the Lord's prayer. We just told her we loved her and she opened her eyes for a second and then closed them again and, and passed away. So that was uh, on the evening of July 17th. And Kristen, how, how long was her little life then? Did, did she live to be about six months old? She was five and a half months. It was 168 days because I remember every day in the hospital, they would mark, you know, what her weight was and what her temperature was. And I remember looking at the chart and it was 168 days on the day she died. Yeah. Not 168 days of a lot of suffering. And I imagine 168 days of a lot of blessings in there too. And I would imagine, though I don't know, thankfully as of yet, we have two healthy children, God be praised at this time, but I would imagine that those little things like smiles mm -hmm. and her, her skin color looking vibrant that day, like those would be the blessings mm -hmm. that would probably soak in. Yeah. Um, the smell so of your baby. I always would smell her and there's certain animals she liked and books that she liked. And so she was your first pregnancy then, mm -hmm. your first child. Mm -hmm. And then you have now six living children. Mm -hmm. 
but then your story continues even with this this heavy loss marking marking your life so far. Could you tell us about that too? Sure. Uh, so I have I've had twelve pregnancies at this point. Vivian, who passed away, I've had five miscarriages, and there it seems to be almost one between every kid. There's a birth, a live birth, and then a miscarriage, and a live birth, and a miscarriage. And I have had a son who's had uh, two open heart surgeries. He almost died at birth. We thought everything was good, but he ended up having some really major heart complications. So that was uh, another kind of rough challenge. But he is alive and well and eight years old. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And now what are the um, ranges and ages of your living children? Mary is 11. Marta is nine. Lazarus is eight. Lazarus is the one with the heart issues. Uh, Lazarus being the name we picked before we realized he had heart issues. <sighs> I remember being in the hospital with him when we took him into the hospital and just saying, Lord, I wish we had named him Jack. I don't want to name him Lazarus. I'm joking. I'm kidding. And the name has been fitting. But mm. Simeon is six. Helen is three and David is one. So you are very, very busy and also have abundant blessings too. Yes, yes. And Tiffany, you said that you were Kristen's deaconess at, at sometimes during this time for her as, as I guess her deaconess, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but how were you there to care for her? And, and how did you see others come around to care for the Gregories at that time? Oh, the, yeah, the body of Christ is, is very precious, but I, I am, I empathize with, with Kristen and, and Peter and, and, you know, as someone who got to, to hear, uh, sometimes some, um, early pregnancy announcements, I, I remember being together and Kristen saying, I'm, I'm pregnant. And, and then, you know, maybe a, a few months or a weeks later when she told me she, she'd miscarried feeling sad and, and grieving along with them. It's, it, it's of course, um, not the same. I, I, not feeling the intensity of, of grief and warm, but, but even as, um, Kristen shares Vivian's story again, which I, I, I've heard before, but it still, uh, makes me feel choked up. I, I still want to cry even, even though, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not Vivian's mom. And so I guess all of, all of that to say that, uh, as a sister in, in Christ and someone who loves the entire, uh, Gregory family, even those I've, I've not met, I rejoice and, and mourn with them as well as uh you know the we I know people in their congregation I, I wasn't a deaconess called to their congregation solely I served the entire district but got to know uh the the people in in at our savior uh Lutheran Church in Westminster Massachusetts uh, very very well through some other kind of emotionally intense grieving experiences that they had as a congregation and so there there are a, a people who are, are loving and, and I think too the, the same way empathetic and and loving the Gregory family and and so you know as a body of Christ we hurt together we rejoice together uh, weeping with those who weep and as it, as it says in Romans uh, and and that's what diaconal love is it, it's it's mercy it, it's care for people in, in in body and soul so I always uh, would would say that. It was, you know, kind of a, a privilege to to be involved in, in hearing these intimate experiences of the family, you know. But at the same time, recognizing that that Kristen is walking a path, and Peter, 
and, and their children that, that I can't fully understand, but I can, but I can pray. So that's something that we've done together. And, and I kind of constantly do, even when we're, we're not together, you know, praying for the, for the Gregory's, for Kristen and, and Peter and all of their children. Well, Kristen, after Tiffany was describing how the, the church tried to step in and, and care for you and your family, how would, how would you describe the care that you received? Was it, was it, you know, overall? And now I, I know that I, I, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth and I also don't want to make any assumptions, but I would imagine that with every loss, perhaps the experience was somewhat different, even if the, the, the pain felt somewhat equivalent or different, the experiences them, themselves were different. So I guess I don't, I don't mean to overgeneralize, but mm-hmm. like, as a whole, how did you and your husband and your whole family experience the care from the church and from friends mm-hmm. following your losses? And okay. maybe, you know, what was, what was helpful and truly caring for you mm-hmm. and, and what felt harmful, even if it was kind of under the guise of someone trying to care for you? Mm-hmm. Honestly, people were wonderful. I, I really can't say. I actually wrote a letter to a friend today telling her how much I appreciated her during that time. This, both of our situations, both Vivian and Lazarus, happened in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We were at St. Paul's Church in uh, downtown Fort Wayne. And uh, people were very kind, you know, bringing food, bringing, um, n- sending notes calling, just telling people or people telling us that they were thinking of us and caring for us. And I remember one Sunday after Lazarus was born and walking into church, just feeling absolutely like a zombie because he was waiting for his second heart surgery and he was very ill. I had to like stay up all night to watch him to make sure he wasn't, make sure he could breathe because he had such complications. We had to always take him to the doctor and change his Lasix doses. And I was just a zombie. And I remember this woman coming up. She didn't say a word to me. She just gave me a hug. And that's all I needed. Like, that's all she needed to do (laughs) to let me know that I was cared for and that she was thinking of me. So I just appreciated those small things like a hug or someone saying hello. I, I know situations can be kind of scary for people. And so sometimes people are afraid to say anything because they're afraid to say the wrong thing or they're afraid they might say something offensive. And so, just knowing that people were were willing to speak to me and talk to me and not kind of treat me like a leper was helpful. You know, the actually the little notes that people wrote while we were in the hospital were very helpful with scripture verses in them pointing us to Christ because just like those moments when we couldn't say during during our C-section with Vivian when we couldn't say the the verses we had memorized for our labor they were putting scripture into our hearts and into our minds and, and reminding us of what is true rather than um, not saying anything at all. So just those little reminders that um, Jesus loved us, that he loves our child, that uh, we will see her again in the resurrection. Those were all, I know it sounds simple, but those were things, that's exactly what I needed. Mm. And do you remember today what your uh, memory verse was with your husband from the Psalms? It was Psalm 117, I think. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I think that's 117. Mm-hmm. 
Psalm 117. And then you were also, of course, um, at a time when I'm sure words were really hard to even conjure up. The, the memory of the Lord's Prayer was great comfort to you. It sounded mm-hmm. like even in Vivian's last last breaths and her last moments. Right. We always said that she went from her father's arms to her heavenly father's arms as we prayed those words. I, I also can't imagine now because I, I'm, I'm hoping to learn some some things from you today, Kristen, not only about your own story, but then how I can in turn care for others mm-hmm. in my midst who have gone through something similar. I So far in my husband and our married life, um, we have been pregnant twice and have two living children. And so at this time, I haven't experienced the, the pain, the suffering, and, and really the trauma of losing a child. But if you had to put it into words, what has it been like for you? And, and has it been different with every loss? Or is there some, some common pain that you, that you have felt with, with each loss? And was, was Vivian's loss, I'm sure, a little bit, you know, well, it was a different experience altogether. I would imagine lo- losing her after she was born and then you could carry her in your arms. So I guess that's a lot of questions, but if you could just help me understand what it is that you've you've been through. Mm-hmm. Each one's definitely been different. Every every time since Vivian, every time I take a pregnancy test, there's a like a moment of thankfulness and then a moment of terror because I know that I'm either going to miscarry this baby, you know, it could be a stillborn. I go through the whole list in my head of all the complications that could happen. And the baby has to come out of me one way or the other, dead or alive. And I know that sounds morbid, but I mean, that's kind of been the reality I've lived with. And so uh, for better or worse, my first, my first uh, reaction is thankfulness. And then my second reaction is absolute fear <laughs> and terror. Vivian's was traumatic. And I honestly didn't realize this until recently. I just, I didn't know the words to use. And I didn't, I didn't, I don't know much about psychology. But her situation was was traumatic and quite painful. The miscarriages we've had, while they were sad, they also seemed fairly, the situation seemed kind of healthy and normal. We were able to take our baby, bury it in the ground. You know, we, we pray for those babies and talk about those babies. But it wasn't, it wasn't a trauma in the same way. There were some, some hard miscarriages I had, but it wasn't it wasn't as complex and and drawn out as Vivian's situation or even Lazarus's heart surgeries. So those those were on a different scale and and really kind of shocking. Kristen, I would imagine that you know although you feel most comfortable speaking then from your own experience, what what is kind of the the spectrum of reactions that that might happen to different people after after an infant loss or after loss through miscarriage? I think every person is so different. Never talk about them and never, never share them. Some people have to talk about them to process them and to give their baby sort of some validation and meaning. Anger is probably the most common one after you lose a child. A lot, there's a lot of despair. I know a lot of people who've just felt absolutely hopeless after, after losing a child suicidal even to be to be really honest I remember after when I got pregnant with Mary my my child after Vivian I was going for the ultrasound at 20 weeks and I 
it occurred to me that I should just crash the car. I should just like end it now before I find out that she's dead. And my husband actually made me get out of the car and he took over the driving <laughs> because I just, I was a mess and I couldn't go through that again. I think a lot of people resent God because like myself, I felt like I deserved something good because I'd obeyed him and been obedient to him. And uh, to have to have a loss like that just felt like I, God wasn't playing his part in the bargain, if that makes sense. I know that's bad theology, but that's kind of how I looked at it at the time. I had an early miscarriage and I felt a lot of guilt. Mm. wondering what I, I may have mm. not cared for my child uh, well, well enough. And I don't get into specifics, but I, I just wanted to point out another emotional reaction and, and um, sure. what sure. what Kristen says and, and how it's, it, it's not a, also a momentary pain. I mean, uh, you, you feel it, uh, you know, for, for me, it's been 26 years, 26 mm-hmm. years, and I still can, can feel those emotions and, and that pain. Okay. And I think uh, some of the, the people that I, I met later in, in life when I was serving in a, a home for, for seniors, uh, they would talk about children who had, had died in infancy. Mm. And, um, it, it, it lasts a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's not something you get over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, where, do you think, where do you think those feelings come from, especially those of, of guilt and and anger. Mm-hmm. I mean, are they are, are they a, a, like a theological wrestling, or are they very yes. much internalized? Where it's it's a, a personal responsibility for you as a woman and a mom to carry these children, and so that's where where those emotions are wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it just both? I think it's different for every person, but for for me, it's wanting to make sense of things. And wanting to make sure thing, those things don't happen again. So a sense of control, mm-hmm. needing to control the situation and make sure it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, Peter, of course, is not, is not um, here with us today. And so I don't mean to make you put <laughs> words on his lips that aren't there. But would you describe your and Peter's experience of, of um life so far different in the way that you have handled this and grieved? Is there some kind of difference that you feel mothers go through in the grieving process that dads have or, or don't have mm-hmm. the same or or what's different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I think I think every couple is different. And I know some husbands who take it far harder than the wives. And I know some wives who are just despairing and the husband seems to kind of go on with life as normal. So I think each couple reacts differently. For us, when we were in the hospital, kind of heading toward death, no one had quite said that yet, but all the signs pointed to she was going to die. We had broken down in our ability to communicate with each other. And it was really tense and really uncomfortable and really awkward, especially being newlyweds. And the nurses said to us, you're not going to, your marriage is not going to survive this unless you seek help. So we actually went to a counselor during that time. And after she died, just so we could learn how to talk about it with each other. That was, I think, I don't even know what the counselor said, but that was very helpful for us and necessary. And a lot of the couples that we saw in the NICU did get divorced. And a lot of people who have lost children 
I know have have gotten divorced. So it occurred to me to leave my husband because I never wanted to have sex again. I never wanted to have another child. I never wanted to feel happy again. And so I just thought, okay, I've got to get out of this. And so it, it really occurred to me after she died that that was the end of my marriage. So I'm very thankful to God that we are still married. He's the kindest and wonder, most wonderful man. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. And I would imagine, too, I, I guess that's just what that's just what the brokenness of this world and in a like a sin ridden world. That's what it does to us. And that that aim of causing, you know, division and even relationships where mm-hmm. there's no cause in, in either of you. But that's how sin works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It wiggles its way in and causes all of these um, feelings of guilt and shame and resentment and bitterness. And I think that you were wise to seek out counseling and I'm sure pastoral help through that time as well. Mm-hmm. What would you what would you say or how would you encourage other couples going through this experience currently or still, you know, t- 20 years later or whatever, feeling the need to get you know, care or support, how would you encourage them or, and where would you encourage them to go to? It was helpful for me to go to a pastor and have received conf- or do confession and absolution. Part of it was I, I was just so angry with God that I hated the world and I was so angry at everybody. And it was very helpful to go and, and confess my sins uh, to a pastor and be forgiven for that. The hard part about our situation was my husband got a call right after Vivian died and started full-time ministry work right after that. And so he was gone all day long, every day, and I was home alone, kind of in despair. It it was a really unhealthy situation. And I I wish, looking back, that we had spent more time together, that we had um, worked together through that more. Like I said, we were still really getting to know each other. And I don't think everybody is maybe as uh, unhealthy as we were at that time. But as long as there's someone they can talk with, whether it's each other, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a counselor, as long as there's someone that they can process those things with and not keep those to themselves, I think all of those are helpful. And Kristen, throughout your time of grief. And then I would imagine maybe it, it's safe to say that you're, you still grieve and you're still grieving. What have you learned about grief in the process of your grieving? And, and maybe what has it exposed about yourself? Hmm. I think a lot of different things. Some, some are good, some are bad. Like I said, a lot of what I experienced at the beginning was just anger. I felt angry at everybody. I was I was angry at all my friends who had babies at the same time Vivian was born and their babies were normal. Those babies, you know, are 13 years old old now and I still know them and are friends with those those people. But for a while, I didn't want to look at their children. I didn't want to hear about their children because I kept comparing my child to theirs and I would think, well, my child wouldn't disobey their, their parent like that, or my child would be sleeping through the night or, you know, just kind of assuming the best of someone who's, who's, who's dead. And rather, rather than being realistic and saying, my child would have been a sinner too, thinking that 
my child would have been better than their children. So that was really ugly when I realized I was doing that and had to make make some confessions to friends and and talk to friends about that. And they were very forgiving and kind, but that was that was hard. And it took a few years to get through that. I think it's also on the, it, it feels, grief feels kind of like another person, like another child you're taking care of. And I, I felt like I had this huge weight on my shoulders all the time and this huge burden I was carrying. I don't know if that was a replacement for my child. I felt like when I went to the grocery store, I needed to have some evidence that I was a child or a, a parent. And so I would bring my, all my scrapbooks of Vivian to the grocery store with me and put them in the front of the cart when I was getting my groceries. And I, obviously, I don't do that now. But I remember the day about six months after she died when I stopped taking my scrapbooks everywhere and kind of the freedom of, okay, I can just live life without having to bring these things along or to prove to someone that I'm a mother. Kristen, you, you're bringing up some really practical things and you're, you're bringing up some very uh, spiritual ways that you, you dealt um, with the, the loss of, of your children. I, I love how you uh, brought up con- confession and absolution and, and, and being forgiven for uh, some of the, the ways you realized you were, um, I guess, maybe coping with, with the death of your, your child and, and re- reacting. I also think what I'm, I'm hearing you talk about is something that we don't, we don't talk about a, a lot in modern Christianity, but the, the lament. You haven't said that word, but I, I'm hearing mm-hmm. I'm hearing you describe lament like uh, it, you know it's in the the Psalms. We have Psalms of lament, and uh, throughout the ages, the the, the church has I mean, cried out to God in in grief, in sorrow, in tremendous suffering, without answers for what God is doing and mm-hmm. what's happening. So often, when there's there's suffering, we hear this people have this question of, you know, like, well, why God? Why, why me? Why now? Why did you send this to me? And we don't ever in this earthly life have the answers to that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like to remind myself that maybe a better question is where rather than why, you know, but where are you in this, in this God? Mm-hmm. And lament can do that as, as well. But mm-hmm. uh, I think It'd be helpful to talk about where where is the consolation when we're lamenting too, and you've you've already done that to some degree. I remember going to church. My husband actually told me I had to keep going to church because I was like, I just can't do this. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk to people. But I most importantly, I just I couldn't face all those emotions that that I didn't know what to do with. And so I would sit in church. I think I sat most of the time for like the first four months and I just cried and I would read the words of the hymns and I would listen to the readings and listen to the sermon and I would just sob, like ugly cry, not, you know, gentle. It was kind of obvious. And now I wish I had sat in the back, not in the front, but I, I would just sob and think, Yes, this is true. I, I know I can't say the Lord's Prayer right now. I know I can't say the Apostles' Creed, but I believe it and I love it. I just, I can't say it. So just hearing all the people around me saying it and having it be on my mind constantly was such a gift, but not having to even open my mouth 
to say it, just kind of taking it all in. And it, mm-hmm. it took, I remember the big turning point was All Saints Day and getting to All Saints Day um, was huge and was extremely painful because we sang songs from her funeral at All Saints Day. And that's the first time I'd heard them since then. When you first started describing that, what I was hearing was uh, re- receiving, that you were, you were receiving the word. You weren't um, in a place where you could uh, be speaking and, and praying and singing God's word in, in the life of the church and in the divine service and, and worship in um, your church. But, but uh, mercy and grace was so poured out on you because you were able to receive um, that from the, the body of Christ and from the pastor. Yes. And, and having, yeah, like you said, receiving, having those words spoken, having people around you who, you know, believe the same things and will pick you up when you can't pick yourself up. It was, it was a very healing place to be and absolutely the most painful place to be. Hmm. There's a a beautiful strength that is within the fellowship of believers that, that you have really hit on is that just being within the congregational life, uh, even when you don't feel it, even when life um, is heavier than what you can bear for yourself, the corporal confession, even when you can't speak it with your own lips mm-hmm. of um, what Christ has done for you and not only for you, but then clinging to those promises that he has made to Vivian in her baptism mm-hmm. and clinging to the truth in his word, which even touches on the suffering of, you know, the loss of of life and even the loss of babies within the womb. And it, too, being in the sanctuary and in the Lord's house and, and going to the Lord's table, uh, we, we confess that uh, we're with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. So when you are, are at the Eucharist, at the Lord's Supper, um, you're with Vivian yes. and your other children. And so that is something very precious when we when we don't feel like um, going to church and being with all the people and we don't feel um, like putting on a smile but instead to be there to sob to ugly cry I I think be up front and ugly cry because again it's this is lament mm-hmm. and the, the sacrament to be in the place where the Lord is and um and have that taste of uh the resurrection right each, each week that's very precious as well yeah, I remember after Vivian died, just as a mother, your internal instinct is to take care of your child. And I would wake up in the night searching our bed for her. And I mean, it took months to stop doing that, but I would I would wake up in terror looking for her. And I would expect her to, you know, come around the corner or I'd expect to walk into the room and she would be there. And so it was really comforting when I realized just what you said, that the place where we're really meeting her is in is in Holy Communion, that she's with Christ, we're with Christ, we're together with Christ. So that, that was a big turning point for me, was, was recognizing that and then being at peace with that. And I could stop looking for her, you know, around my house. And Kristen, what have you and Peter, what kind of promises, sure promises, has Christ offered to you who are grieving and also to his dear children, Vivian and those whom you carried in your womb. <laughs> I tell my kids frequently that I love them. And I tell them that, that, that as much as I love them, Jesus loves you more. 
and he will take care of you. He will, he loves you. He wants the best for you. And I have to remember that he does that for me too, not just my children, but for even as adults and parents, he loves us and does what's best for us. And he does love our children. He, he is more of a father to our children than we are to him or to our children. That's something I'm just kind of wrestling through recently. And that is, has been very, very comforting to me to realize that I am not responsible for keeping them alive. I'm not responsible for their faith. I'm responsible to bring them to Jesus. I'm responsible to, you know, and my husband, not just me, but my husband as well, to, you know, have, help them know the scriptures and know the hymns of our church and the promises of God. And, he, and Jesus has his own relationship with each of our children. It takes a lot of burden and pressure off of me to feel like I'm responsible for that. So as long as I bring them to Christ, he will take, take them from there. And that is a, a gift and comfort. And I'm sure also, also a comfort to realize that those babies that you carried in your womb who, who did not live past, you know, the the 40 week gestation that even in your womb, I can guarantee that they were in the Lord's house mm -hmm. in your womb, hearing the word of God, at least each Sunday, mm -hmm. uh, spoken to you and spoken to them and the sure promises that, that, that Christ offers to those who have, who have faith in him mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and even happen in the womb. And that, <laughs> that is a, 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 the creed that is the faith that that we hold to and so the promises for those babies who were lost also is that christ will one day say uh wake O sleeper and rise from mm -hmm. the dead mm -hmm. and on the last day you know as easily as they would have awoken you know in the morning from their sleep they mm -hmm. will awake on the last day and we will be living with the sainted in the new heavens mm -hmm. mm -hmm. thanks be to god Amen. Kristen, just as we wrap up, you've been so gracious to share your time with us and to share your story, the story that's still being written in your life. On a very practical level, what would you say to a congregation? Um, how would you encourage them to support families in their loss of their children and their, and their sufferings of miscarriages? What are some helpful ways that the church that individuals can come around these families and care for them. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to never do nothing. So if, if all you can do is just send a note and say, I'm thinking of you or write out a scripture of comfort, even those small things are important. I look back and the people who wrote me notes or who called or who just brought by food without me asking, those are people I felt safe with. And felt like, okay, they love me. I may not be able to respond to them right now. I may only be able to cry at them or be mad at them. But these are people who care enough to do something and to fold me into their lives. Even friends who had children, they would invite me to their kids' games or let me change their kids' diapers, which just made me feel normal. Appreciated those sorts of things. People who would go on a walk with me or or even call and leave a message, even if I couldn't pick up the phone to answer just because I couldn't handle talking to someone at that time. Just 
the, the reminder that you're loved and that you're important and you're on someone's mind, I think goes a long way. I also I love the hymn, Be Still My Soul. And the third verse, can I read that to you? Please. Be still my soul. I sing this to myself all the time. Be still my soul when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in this veil of tears. Then you shall better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still my soul, thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. So even writing out a hymn, a scripture verse, something that reminds people of the truth because it's easy to get so distracted by your pain or to be in such shock that you don't even know what's happening. So if you can anchor people back in Christ and God's goodness and kindness, even in the midst of horrible situations. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen, for coming on, for spending time with me, with Tiffany. And Tiffany, thank you for joining me, being my co-host, and sharing some really intimate parts of your story also. It was a, it was a pleasure to talk with you both today. Thank you. And thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button on your app so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life.